Welcome to episode three of Hunting for Candle Ends. My name is Neil, aka Candle Ends. This week I'm a little under the weather. I can't hear very well out of my left ear, but I managed to piece this together. First up is my interview with Duncan Sheik from 2001. Then my friend Marty Mapes, founder of moviehabit.com, has a piece on narrowcasting for your consideration. And then it's time for a sing song. Marty gave me a nice compliment once. He told me that I was a good listener. So while we have already established that I ask stupid questions, at least I listen to the answers. Here's my interview with Duncan Sheik for Soundboard Magazine in 2001. Hello? Hi, Duncan. Hi. Hi, this is Neil from Soundboard Magazine. How's it going, Neil? Doing great. Um, yeah, hold on, just hold on one sec. Okay. Is, is there, I've got to do all these interviews. Is that, is that okay? I'm sorry. I'm just going to pick this one for you. Exactly, sorry. I'm on the bus. Okay. And so, just a, there's a question of some amount of organization. It's got to happen here. Okay. Privacy, please. Okay. All right. It's all ready now. Great. So you're on the bus now. Where, where are you off to? Um, we've been in Toronto for the past couple of days, and we're going to Rochester, New York. Great. All right. Well, the first question I have is kind of a general one for you. Yeah. Um, You're calling from Colorado? Yeah, I'm calling from Colorado. That's right. Okay. Boulder, Colorado. Okay, cool. Um, and I, just so you know, I have a, I have um, sort of two sections of questions I was going to ask you. Okay. Um, there was, I was going to write a piece on Nick Drake later in the year, and I was going right. to use some of your comments on Nick Drake for that. So that'll okay. be for the second half. Okay. Um, First question, though, why do you write songs? Simply, <laughs> I guess it's um, I guess it's mainly for catharsis. You know, you have a certain kind of intense emotion, whether it's you know, um, kind of comes from sadness or desire or perhaps joy, but usually not. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you want to kind of ex- express that in the music, and the, kind of the act of expressing it is is very healing for me personally. And 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 it is, and the act of expressing that emotion, even if it's sad, is 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 very joyful. Um, were you afraid that you'd lose that sort of uh, catharsis when you were doing an album where someone else wrote the lyrics? Um, uh, you know, it wasn't. To be honest, I wasn't really thinking or caring about that, and I'm very—I'm one of those people that, ha, you know, the the emotional intensity comes from music. Mm-hmm. It doesn't—it doesn't really come from words. Right. I mean, I mean, the words are, are there to serve the music and to serve the song and the recording, but um, but you know, hold on one second. Um, so, yeah, I don't, you know, it's not, I wasn't thinking like, oh, I think, see, the thing about this collaboration is that it didn't, 
it's not like I woke up one day and said, I don't want to write words or anything. It was something that happened kind of naturally and organically, where Stephen asked me to write some music for one of his plays. And then, you know, he just kind of started faxing me lyrics after that. And at a certain point, um, I felt like the, his kind of lyrical sensibility and the kind of the poetry and the kind of impressionistic mood of Mendes lyrics would suit a certain approach to recording music that I had been wanting to do for a while. Um, and it, it was like, it, it provided, a, a, I think, a great opportunity to make a very specific kind of record um, that wouldn't work with normal kind of pop songwriting lyricism. Um, would you say when you're performing or when you're recording that... Um this new music that somehow it was different for you when you're, you're speaking somebody else's words I, yeah it's 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 not i mean it, in a way it's almost liberating um in fact it is liberating there's not i, I don't have any kind of self-consciousness about the words or, or you know what i'm saying because well they're not my words and so they're just words that i you know from from somebody whose talent I respect enormously, and they're and you know I'm, they're generally they're, they move me, and so it's you know it's very easy for me to get into a a space of singing those those lines. In other, you know, in other words, when I you know sometimes when when I'm singing you know like in Mr. Chess when when he the line is says I you know I will. I'll dream you sing so fair, I'll sing you castles in the air. You know, I can, it, it's very intense for me, um, maybe more intense even than for my own words. Okay. Um, let's go back a little bit. What would you say initially inspired you to, to want to go into music and write, write songs? Well, I've been playing guitar since I was about five. You know, I'm just one of those kids who is just like a music-oriented kid. And... Um, you know, I'd always, I was always bugging my my parents to, you know, to buy me musical equipment. And as soon as I could, as soon as I was able to work and make my own money, like as a, you know, in my early teens, you know, I I, I bust tables to, to buy my first drum machine and my first synthesizer, and, you know, and I was, you know, just always really obsessed by the process of making music and, and recording music, in fact. Um, and I I didn't really sing very much at all until until much later, um, until I was about 19 or 20. Um, because, you know, before that, well, and even, even up till recently, I was very self-conscious about my voice and I couldn't, I couldn't really sing in public at all. But I was always making music. Um, what was the first song you wrote that you were that you were proud of? Um, it was a song called "Raindrop Doves." Uh, I was, I guess, I was 19, and I did this recording. And I was at I was at Brown University at the time, and um, it was like the first thing I'd sung on in a really long time. And um, you know, it was. I, I did this recording, and 
some friends of mine heard it, and it actually got into the hands of a music publishing person in L.A. who kind of offered me like a publishing deal. So it was really like the first song that I ever wrote. Um, you know, it, it worked. Yeah. And then, you know, and then kind of all went downhill from there. <laughs> How do you know when you've written a song that you want to put on an album? Um... How do you know when it's, I don't know if you'd say it's a good song, but how do you know when I usually don't, unless, you know, I pretty much finish and, and record everything that I write, pretty much. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, two or three songs will get cut from any given album project, but usually they find their way onto some, into some other, you know, situation. So I don't, in other words, I don't, I try, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, continue to work on something that I don't think is, is, is of some value. You'll figure it out as you go along. Yeah. Well, uh, since you're touring now, what do you uh, like about touring, performing live? Um, well, it's only very, very recently that I have enjoyed this process of touring at all. Um, initially, it was, it was very difficult for me. And, like I said, I was kind of self-conscious of my voice, and I was very uncomfortable in in the spotlight. And I didn't, you know, I kind of, I wanted it to be about the music and not about me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm realizing that there's another kind of musical intensity that can be found in performance. And, you know, I've just, just kind of, I just feel like something's finally clicked inside me. And, you know, as we're, as I've been playing this stuff with the band the past few days, it's kind of like a, a it's kind of great rebirth. What, what size band are you turning with right now? Um, a four piece, um, you know, bass, drums, another guitar player, and myself playing guitar and singing. But um, I think when I come to Colorado, we're just, it's just Jerry and I, it's just going to be like kind of the acoustic set. So just two guitars and vocals. All right. When you write or perform a song, is there is there particularly somebody in mind, or are you, is it a form of communication for you? Is it a form of communication? It can be. Yeah. I mean, there are you know there are many examples of songs where I've done that. Um, uh, but not always. Not always. Sometimes it's just to express a certain idea for my own for my own self. To yourself. Yeah, sure. Looking back at your last two records, are there things you wish you could have done differently? Um, I guess it, it's interesting. I, I guess if I were to if I were to re-record those records today, I would I would actually think I, that I would, in terms of production, I would make them much much simpler. I would use like far fewer elements, but I think for the you know for the time that they were recorded, I mean I'm you know I'm very proud of both those groups and I'm in fact of all three of the records and I you know I, I I don't feel like you know it would be worthwhile to kind of go back in and retool that stuff necessarily, um, but you know I will say that like as I'm starting to record my next record my my fourth album. For Atlantic, 
um, I, I am trying to do this, take an approach where things are, are much more simple. In other words, having fewer elements and communicating more with fewer elements. Um, what? Well, what can you tell me about the new, new album? Well, it, it's going to be, in a way, it's kind of the other side of the coin of Phantom Moon. It, it, you know, because it will, it's going to be much more modern. It will use some technology. Um, it will be, on the surface of it, it will be music that's made within the constraints of modern pop music. In other words, it will it will seem like like a like a pop record to most people, I'm sure. Um, but let's just say there it's maybe that's it's a little bit of a trick. Okay. I saw something referred to on your website as Phantom Moon Two. Is that what you're you're talking about? Or is no, 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 no. No, the next record for Atlantic is 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 what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Phantom Moon Two is there. There's about ten other songs that Stephen and I have come up with since finishing Phantom Moon. So eventually, somewhere down the road, those will get recorded and there'll be another record. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably, you know. Bob, I, mean, I only have a one record deal with him, but you know, if, you know, everything is going pretty well, so I'm sure Bob would be happy to make another one. What music have you yourself been listening to lately? Um, I listen to a lot of 20th century classical music, um, Arvo Pertz, um, Steve Reich. Um, I listen to some artists like, you know. Bill Frizzell, I've always been a fan of, but you know, now that I got a chance to work with him, just listening more to his his stuff, and um, and then I, you know, I listen to Coldplay, and I listen to some modern things, Bjork, I really love Massive Attack, um, some Indian classical music I've been listening to. Would you call yourself a, a music fan? I'm a I'm a pretty harsh critic. <laughs> I'm more of a music critic than I am a music fan. Unfortunately, I wish I I wish that I was kind of I don't know more open <laughs> to more different kinds of music. But um, but I find so much of it so disappointing. Yeah. I uh, I did remember seeing you on VH1. You did some sort of um, quoting. I think it was the best song of the '90s. Yes. Uh, I, I loved your choices. You did Jeff Buckley, Radiohead, and um, and Master Attack. Master Attack. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, uh, I guess you're, I think you're a good critic of music. So. <laughs> That's um, good. You seem like someone who's not too afraid to show your influences. No, not at all. Are you ever afraid that your music sounds too much like someone else? No, I don't think so. I mean, my my influences are are like enough that even if it does sound close to that, it doesn't really bother me because it's kind of like, it's one thing if I were, you know, if I were heavily influenced by Nirvana, you know, and, and, and it's like everybody knows and their mother knows who Kurt Cobain is or was. Um, and that, you know, that to me, there's kind of no point in making music that sounds like Nirvana. Meanwhile, I think there's very, there's a very good reason to make music that yeah, that is similar to Mark Hollis or Nick Drake or David Sylvian or the Blue Nile or you know because the, the, because all of those artists were marginalized to a degree 
and uh, you know I think that that that, that they they're within a tradition that's kind of sadly neglected. Yeah, and you brought people to the music, so. Yeah. Um, one, well, I was reading on the message board on your website, and I've seen you have some pretty devoted fans. Yeah. But you even have requests from fans to send you email or call them or write music for their songs or, or even take them to the prom. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering, how, how do you respond to that kind of fan pressure? Well, I don't really look at it as pressure. I mean, I, I like to go on that message board and post occasionally. I mean, in fact, I need to do it more often. And there's some really great conversations that can that, that, that happen on the message board. And that's really, you know, it's really more of a place for them to communicate with each other rather, you know, rather than... So, I mean, I, I do read that stuff, and, you know, and I do enjoy it. But... Um, I don't really think of it as pressure, you know, it's just kind of, it comes with the territory. Um, well, let me move on to the, the Nick Drake questions here. Sure. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to put this in the same piece or if I'm going to have something separate or what, but yeah. um, I have some questions for you here. How were you introduced to Nick Drake? Well, um, at the time, in 1994, when I was kind of, um, I I'd signed a publishing deal, but... I was still really looking for a record deal. Um, Tony Berg was A&R at Geffen. He's, he's now the head of A&R at Virgin, but at the time he was at Geffen. And he listened to my tape and he liked it and we had a, that, a series of meetings. And at, and he at one point he played me... Um, he listened to some things that I had been doing, or he listened to the song Home, which is on my first record. And he said, oh, you should, he said, you should listen to this. And he played me Riverman. And my kind of, my jaw kind of dropped when I heard it. And I just said, you know, that's, I said, oh, you know, here's what I've been trying to do. And some guy did it 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, how would you say Nick Drake influenced your music since that point? Well, you know, it, it, it kind of um, solidified in my mind uh, a kind of vague desire I had had to, to use, you know, to use string arrangements as a, as a central part of the sound of the record. Um, and at that point when I heard that, it, it kind of... You know, I realized that he had to say it was definitely a, 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 something I wanted to pursue. Why did you choose to cover the complete Pink Moon album? Well, actually, that was that was really Jerry's, Jerry Leonard, the guitarist I worked with. It was kind of his suggestion, and his reasoning, I think, is very good. Um, Jerry said, you know, why don't he said this is you know this is such a cool record. It's kind of short. It's like 30 minutes, and you just and it, it's it's very manageable because it's mostly just you know a guitar and a voice. So um, so Jerry said, you know, why don't we just perform the whole record, and we could maybe also do a, a couple other Nick Drake songs afterwards to kind of fill it fill it out. But um, his reasoning was that you know even during Nick's lifetime, so few people were able to have an experience of that music live. And Nick himself, by the time he made Pink Moon, I don't think he was performing at all. So um, he, 
you know, he would kind of get up, stumble on stage and play three songs and get off, from, from what I understand. So, um, you know, so nobody has really ever had an experience of hearing this music live unless it's, you know, one or two songs are covered here and there. But for, for us, it was kind of like, you know, can we, let's do a whole show of just Nick Drake so that people can have that experience. Um, I'm on a, a Nick Drake discussion group, and I had, they gave me some questions to ask you. Okay. So um, one guy had, had seen you in concert, and generally your, your concert was very well received by the Nick Drake fans. Great. Uh, concert. How long did it take and how difficult was it for you to figure out the guitar work and the tunings to be able to play those songs live? Um, it, you know, it's, again, I have, to, I have to give most of the credit to Jerry because he kind of did a lot of the, the research on that stuff. Um, so, but it did, it definitely did take about a month to really get it all together and find the right, find the right tunings and the right kind of approach to it. It's, you know, it's not, you know, that's, it, that's actually one of the amazing things about Nick Drake was that he was such a pioneer and he did things in such conventional ways. And they really work and they're beautiful for that reason, but it makes it a little difficult to, to reenact it. Um, I had a question. If you played guild guitars and if, if not, what do you, what did you use to make a, a good well, you know, he Nick used these little, um, I guess they're these like kind of small body like maple gills, and um, Jerry has Jerry has a little like a small uh, maple Martin, um, and um, I kind of use these guitars called Froggy Bottom. They're made by a, a luthier in Vermont. And it's kind of like a parlor guitar. It would be, you know, it's, it's, it's again, pretty small body. Um, something like a, kind of like a Martin Triple O from the 30s or 40s. And, um, I, you know, I see, I'm not, <laughs> I wasn't really trying to specifically go for that exact guitar tone, per se. Um, you know, it just, I mean, those are great recordings, those, those guitars sound great on his records, um, but it's, it's really more about how they're played than the particular guitar he was using. Um, one person said that your arrangement of Free Ride was faster and more rock and roll than Nick's original. Right. He said it worked immensely well, but he was wondering if there was a reason why you decided to do it in that, in that new fashion. In that way. Yeah. Well, I, it might have been just because we were nervous and we played it faster. <laughs> I think that's all the questions. I know you have other interviews to do. Thanks for taking the time out. Okay, no problem. We look forward to seeing you out here in Colorado. Okay, great. Thank Thanks you so much. Bye. 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 As you can probably tell by the end of the interview, I've been a little obsessed with Nick Drake over the years. I did a Nick Drake special for KGNU Radio in Boulder. And for it, I interviewed Robin Frederick, who was a friend of Nick's in Aix-en-Provence. Nick also recorded her song, Been Smoking Too Long. Unfortunately, I have not yet found the tape of that interview, though I believe it to be a lot better audio quality than that last piece. Hopefully it will turn up soon and I can feature it. 
I have uh, sadly noticed that some of my tapes may not be salvageable. I didn't know how to work the equipment when I interviewed David Eugene Edwards of 16 Horsepower, for example, so I couldn't even really produce a half-listenable version of that. Up next is an audio essay for Marty Mapes. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Hi, everybody else. My name is Marty Mapes. I'm the founder of Movie Habit, and we've been publishing for about 15 years. Neil invited me to talk on this podcast, and uh, I had an idea that, um, that I wrote for another publication called Electric Spec, and you can find that online, too. And there were two movies last year in 2012 that got me thinking about something that I think applies to a lot of uh, small creative types like Neil and me and anybody who doesn't have name recognition, anybody who can't really make a living doing their creative work, but who nevertheless pursues it. The idea came that, um, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, I was a TV addict and I could ask classmates, what did you watch last night? And the amazing thing, not, not only was that people would have an answer, like everybody watched TV, but that you would know what the answer was, because really there were three networks. There was PBS. Denver had a station called KWGN, which was a sister of the Chicago station. But basically, you couldn't surprise somebody with what they watched. Whereas I think anybody growing up today has so many choices. There are cable channels, hundreds of specialized cable channels, you know, YouTube channels, Hulu streaming, even Grace streaming sites that you can get uh, watch. TV programs from anywhere in the world. So if I were to ask somebody, what did you watch last night? Well, maybe they didn't watch anything, or maybe, you know, they were watching TV from Quebec in French. Um, So that's good for people who like me who are creative uh, producers. We will find an audience. And the bad thing is that our audience gets narrower and narrower. And there are two movies last year that take this idea to the extreme. And I'll start with uh, my favorite, which is Holy Motors. And this is a French film that stars Denis Levant as Oscar. And Oscar is an actor, and he spends the day in his appointment. Today, the day of the movie, he has nine appointments. He starts the day as a banker, and his limo driver takes him to his next job. And in the limo, he takes off his banker's makeup, and he puts on an old crone's makeup, nose, hair, scarf, big overcoat. And when he gets to his destination, he gets out of the car and he walks to a bridge in Paris and he begs for coins and he rants about the unfairness of life. And I guess his job is complete because then he gets back in his limo and changes into a motion capture suit. And the driver takes him to the next location where he uh, jumps around according to the voice's seen but or heard but not seen that tell him you know which actions to perform next now you're going to run now you're going to shoot now you're going to have sex with the dragon lady uh and then without ever understanding who or why uh his employer was he gets into the car and goes to his next appointment and throughout the day he plays a father a killer a young woman's dying uncle, and uh, at one point even something that looks like a leprechaun without any self-control. The movie actually sort of explains what's going on, although it never really explains anything. 
So, for example, we never see Oscar's clients. We don't know who's paying him to do these things. Is it a face in the crowd? Are there cameras that we can't see? Or is this a metaphor and his employer is some sort of cruel master who only cares that Oscar does what he uh, is told, no matter how humiliating? Um, the most surprising, one of the most surprising scenes is at his last appointment and he procrastinates and you know he has to go in and do his job, but he sits there and he smokes that cigarette to the last possible minute. And finally, when the bells start chiming, he realizes he has to go in. And I won't tell you what it is, but it's the most humiliating appointment of the day. But it's also surprising, interesting. It opens the movie to a wider possibility that maybe there is some god who's playing tricks on Oscar. And not just some employer who wants him to do something. What's interesting about this, um, in terms of the idea of narrow casting, is that Oscar doesn't know who his audience is. At one point, he's in the limo, and he's talking to his driver, and he says, you know, the cameras kept getting smaller and smaller, and when they got smaller than the size of your head, you couldn't even see them anymore. And he's not even sure anybody is listening. So it's his job to go do this stuff. But is his performance going into a black hole? Is someone actually out there watching? You know, he, he gets paid, and he can make a living at it, but it's kind of depressing to watch him go through all these motions, pour his heart and soul into his performances and not know is anyone even looking? And that's sometimes how I feel about writing movie reviews for movie habit. Or I suppose uh, I'll put words into Neil's mouth and imagine that he feels the same way about podcasting or any creative writer that hasn't made it big. Are we sure anybody's even watching? But nevertheless, we pour our heart and soul into it and hope that Somebody's paying attention. Another movie that followed the same idea, and maybe it was a little more literal, but a little stranger, is called Alps. So whereas Holy Motors could maybe be taken as a parable for life or a metaphor for spirituality, for religion, maybe that's God, that's the audience. Alps is a little more specific about people paying for actors. So Alps is a Greek film, and the director's name is Georgios Lanthimos, and his last movie was called Dogtooth, and that's actually kind of an interesting one in itself. It's, uh, it's kind of like a Truman Show science fiction premise uh, in which the world's most overprotective parents keep their children inside a, a compound. Even though they're now practically adults, they're still being treated as children by their parents. And you kind of wonder whether maybe this is just the director's uh, personal hang-ups, or is this some comment about Greece being a nanny state? I'm not sure. Alps follows along sort of the same lines. It's kind of a science fiction premise, but not set in the space, not set far in the future, just sort of an odd what-if-this-is-how-people-were situation. And Alps has an, a puzzling introduction. You're not quite sure what's going on, but eventually you will learn that the Alps are the actors in a troupe. And these actors specialize in replacing lost loved ones. So there are scenes where you think, okay, you know, the, the introduction is a little hard to follow, but maybe eventually you get around to, maybe it's not such a bad idea. You know, if, a, if an actor can help grieving parents cope with the loss of a child, maybe this is a valuable service. Um, and if an actor's job is just to read the newspaper to her senile, quote, grandmother, then, you know, why not? 
provide the texture of a familiar life for grandmother. Why not do this? But of course, it's not that simple or innocuous. And it's actually kind of disturbing because, after all, replacing a dead child isn't really coping with loss. It's denial. And the kinds of people who hire the Alps tend to have unhealthy psychological needs. So there are people who need to be dominated, people who want submission, people who want conditional love, people who want punishment. It's not a good it's just not a good job for an actor to be in the Alps. But the people in the Alps aren't exactly the Barrymores either, so uh, maybe that kind of makes sense. The characters in this film, and also in the previous one, are very childlike. Um, so the one where the parents refuse to let their children grow up, Dogtooth. And this one, the the actors, the performances, the characters, um, it's kind of like grown-ups playing children. And it's kind of fun to speculate, again, whether this is a statement about Greece and the political situation there, or is this just the hang-ups of the director himself? In any case, um, the idea of incompletely formed adults using their power as consumers to control other adults who are just trying to make a creative career is disturbing. And uh, speaking as a creative person, yeah, maybe it hits home a little closer than it would to just the average audience member. So these are my two recommendations on this podcast. Two of my favorite movies from last year. The first one is Holy Motors, about the actor who spends all day in a limo and isn't sure who's watching. And Alps, the Greek film about uh, having to sell yourself to a smaller and smaller audience but a, a more specialized audience. And maybe I don't need to point out the irony that neither of these films is exactly raking in money at your local multiplex, so in order to find them, you'll need to participate in some narrow casting yourself. So do these artists a favor and let them know you're watching, and do Neil and me a favor and let us know that you're listening. Thanks, Neil. So long. Thanks, Marty. And yes, I have been particularly curious about how many listeners I have so far. So if you want to give us some feedback, you can find Marty at Movie Habit on Twitter, and I am at Candle Ends, uh, underscore ends, that is, or stop by moviehabit.com, which is a great movie site, or the Candle Ends Facebook page, or you can leave me a comment on iTunes. I don't have too many recommendations this week. Uh, not really uh, any new music, but um, what I've been mostly doing is catching up on some uh, shows on television. Uh, the only shows I actually watch regularly are Walking Dead and Comic Book Men. Uh, I've been catching up on Comedy Bang Bang, which is on Netflix Instant Watch. I also did get a chance to see Holy Motors, which it was nice to see that both Marty and Mike uh, recommended I think I'd recommend it too. It's it definitely it's the it's the kind of movie you watch and then think about a lot afterwards. The other movie I saw that was again the same sort of thing where you aren't sure what you're watching at the at the moment, but then later you find yourself thinking about it again. Was the Loneliest Planet, which Mike recommended. Um, I think it was last week. And this is not really the way you should watch a movie, but I kind of fast-forwarded it just so I could kind of get the gist of what was going on. I didn't have much patience with it because it was pretty slow. I know that's pretty lame, but um, I, I felt like I kind of got the gist anyway, so maybe it worked for that movie. 
as far as music is concerned, the the one thing I am interested in is new recordings of Molly Drake, or actually not new recordings, but um, newly released recordings of Molly Drake, who was Nick Drake's mom. And uh, I haven't had a chance to really hear the whole album, but maybe I'll I'll give a further review on that later on in another week. That about does it for this episode of Hunting for Candle Ends. Next is a song. This is called China Makes the Man. Thanks for listening, and all the original songs from Hunting for Candle Ends can be found on bandcamp.com. Goodbye. surreptitiously ate the pancakes viciously what a bad way to start your day stuffing your mouth in an angry way the clothes make the man but who makes the clothes someone off of China I suppose China makes the man China makes the Man, China makes the man, China makes the man. Now I know I'm fuzzy logic, I'm stuck with technological distractions as you are now. But I'm fighting holy fires With umpteen punk vampires I'm singing pathologically In a liar, liar choir China makes the man, China makes the man China makes the man, China makes the man China makes the man, China makes the man, China makes the man, China makes the man. I'm a jackpot, I'm a laughing star, I'm a nomad with a funny one. I've got the eyes of a of a serious guy who caught himself deceiving but he didn't know why where is the kid with the knockout stare who says to me wrong I care China makes the man China makes the man China makes the man China makes the man Shotta makes the man, shotta makes the man, shotta makes the man, shotta makes the man. I had a near death experience. Jocelyn with 24 elbows all day long. Captain Crunch in a halfway house with a mountain dream in his underwear. Prince the spider creeps through crooked corridors under an overturned wash basin full of red linen. 
corkscrew cocktails twisted and pinching on empty throat and waves the talent to us. I hope you understand. I hope you understand. 